Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And we want to welcome you back to our continuing coverage of the fall of Afghanistan. This is First Move. I'm Paula Newton in for Julia Chatterley. And we begin, of course, with the latest from Afghanistan. The U.S. still struggling to pick up the pace of evacuations from the country. The White House says now about 3,000 people were able to leave the Kabul airport on Thursday. That is with U.S. assistance. Many Afghans, though, desperate to flee the country, still trying to enter the airport at this hour. I mean, look at these pictures. Some parents handing their babies to American troops on top of the wall at the airport. Meantime, the U.S. Embassy warns of uncertainty of safety getting to the airport, something we've seen on the ground right now. They say, quote, use your best judgment and attempt to enter the airport at any gate that is open. CNN's Clarissa Ward did get inside that airport. Here's a look at what she saw. I have to say, this is the least chaotic part of the whole process. This is the final furlong when you're almost about to get a, one of those military aircraft carriers that you can probably see behind me. I'm trying not to move too much because our signal's pretty weak. There are a lot of people who have been standing out in that scorching sun for many hours. And as I said, this is the last stage. It begins at the front barriers with the Taliban. Uh, We went through one gate this morning, a crush of people pushing, shoving, screaming, children crying out. I can honestly say it was one of the more harrowing things I have experienced. Then for the lucky people who do get in, you go to the next phase where you sit and wait for several hours. I have talked to people here who have been waiting for two days, two days. And it's such a bottleneck trying to get all these people processed and all these people through. And the problem is that at these bottlenecks, you have these very dangerous situations where you have a crush of people and crowds. And one soldier was telling me that yesterday, two women actually threw their babies over the fence, trying to throw them to the U.S. soldiers. One soldier actually caught the baby in his arms. He went and found the woman afterwards to give the baby back. But honestly, what kind of desperation does a parent have to be in where that's your best hope is to try to throw your baby to a soldier to get them out, to save them from being crushed, to give them a better future? And I think there is nothing that illustrates better the panic, the chaos, the fear, than that description. I talked to another British soldier who started talking to me and he just started weeping. He said, I've done two tours in Helmand, but the PTSD I will have from this last week is worse than either of those deployments because people are getting trampled. You have to remember, there's a huge amount of people, thousands and thousands and thousands, if not tens of thousands, There are multiple gates at entrances. You have the Americans, you have the Brits, you have the Italians, you have the French. 
you have the Hungarians. I mean, we have seen pretty much every nationality you can conceive of who has or had a presence here in Afghanistan. And so you have a lot of and you have the State Department and you have the Marines and you have special forces. And it is very hectic and very difficult. You know, you see people looking for vehicles, traffic jams building up inside the base, people trying to squeeze around blast walls. There just isn't a coherent mechanism yet in place to process these people. You know, even something simple like tents. Please get these people some tents. Okay, I'm okay. But the women with their babies, they can't be standing out in the 95 degree sun for eight hours. They just can't. They're getting water. They're handing out MREs, military meals ready to eat. And they're doing their best they can. But it is still uh, a really, really, really tough situation here. Our Clarissa War just moments ago and CNN International Security Editor Nick Payton Walsh, you were at the airport where Clarissa is just a few days ago. You're in Doha right now. You know, this could still unravel, right, even more than what it already has. A threat assessment that was prepared from the U.N. says that the Taliban are, quote, intensifying the hunt for individuals and collaborators with a former regime. Nick, we have anecdotal evidence that that may be going on already. What are the options here as you see it, especially because there in Doha, there are discussions underway to see what else can be managed to get the desperate out of Afghanistan? Yeah, I mean, look, there's a the scene at the airport today appears to have changed from when I was there, where the problem was getting enough people onto the base to get them onto the planes. They seem to be getting enough people onto the base, but then that signal's getting out, and they still have the same crowd levels on the outside of the base. So success is kind of the Americans' worst enemy to some degree in that people are now hearing of successful Afghans getting inside and getting down that flight line. Now the Americans have to move fast to keep the planes coming to get people off so they can then get more on. Uh, I've seen the volume of aircraft they have here in El Dada Air Base, and that's more than enough to achieve the kind of five to 9,000 off-a-day pace that they wanted yesterday. The State Department also said they had 6,000 processed yesterday ready to leave, uh, and the White House said they had 3,000 who left yesterday. So essentially, at some point, the U.S. government has to give a pretty clear tally as to how all these numbers gel together and when they reach their 9,000 target. But you have to remember, Paula, that Kabul, a city of 6 million, probably has close to an infinite supply of Afghans who would love to take the U.S. up on this offer. And the U.S. explicitly said yesterday at the Pentagon that they do not know how many American citizens there are in Afghanistan who are essentially the priority cases. And if you listen to Joe Biden, who he guarantees he'll get out, and then it's the allied Afghans, they'll do the best they can as a job. So this extraordinary project, this enormous endeavor, this final chapter of America's longest war, the kind of symbolic visual that everyone's going to have in their head about how this war finally ended, well, at this point it's open-ended, it's certainly chaotic, and as I say, People appear to be getting in now more than they were before, but there are periodic moments, I understand, when the gates have to shut because they're overwhelmed inside, maybe outside. Uh, And so this is just a potentially indefinite, exhausting process. And I should point out, too, 
people have died in the crush around the airport, 12 at least at this point. Shots are fired in the air. We don't see Taliban in the north area where lots of people are trying to get in, but that's not also an indefinite thing to take for granted. So uh, an exceptional mess here. Paula? Exceptional mess and more than just symbolic, right? There is a clear and present danger to those who remain in Afghanistan. I know perhaps Germany and Britain in a limited sense have been doing so-called extractions. They've been going to try and get their people out. Is there any sense uh, that that is what needs to be done, especially if the Taliban escalates any kind of campaign for retribution? Uh, some of the reporting about uh, British extraction seems to date before the crisis really got into effect uh, around the airport. I'm not aware if they've actually gone into Kabul to pull people out uh, in the last 48 hours. The Taliban presence there would make that a complex move, certainly. There is a danger here. The UN report was a piece of advice or assessment given by a Norwegian uh, risk assessment company. And I understand that the UN are, to some degree, still trying to work out how serious the Taliban threat is. In fact, you should bear in mind, as one source said to me, there are different possible ways of interpreting uh, Taliban actions. Official Taliban doctrine, ignorant Taliban, the source says, or uh, rogue Taliban. So whatever is occurring as a threat to these individuals, they still are trying to work out what's policy and what's just what's happening on the street. That will be, of course, no comfort to the family of a German journalist, a family member uh, who was killed. Uh, by the Taliban, says the German press agency. So, um, yes, there are limited signs that the sort of vengeance against those who assisted the American presence for 20 years may be beginning, but I should point out it's not at the point where it's overwhelming and there's certainly some sort of crackdown underway. But most people who observe the Taliban over a period of time, many Afghans I've spoken to have said, it's not what they do in this first week that should be of concern. It's what they do in the weeks and months and years ahead. They're very versed at arriving in a place, making everybody feel relaxed, and then going about their business over a, a longer time frame. So mm-hmm. that is the key thing. And as you also know yourself, the focus and attention on Afghanistan is often limited. So the important thing here is to be clear that if the Taliban do change their currently relatively moderate aspect, fraying already as that is quite fast. The people are still paying attention to quite exactly what society the United States and the West leave behind uh, when they properly get their grip on Afghanistan. Yeah, in nearly two decades of uh, uh, being in and around Afghanistan, many people will say when the media glare is off the Taliban, that is when you have to worry uh, about what uh, certainly they are up to. Nick Payton Walsh, thank you very much. Meantime, President Joe Biden is set to deliver an update on the Afghan crisis later today at the White House. All of this, of course, amid reports that the White House was warned last month about the dangers of a military pullout. Now, CNN has learned that a group of U.S. diplomats wrote a classified cable to the Secretary of State, that's Anthony Blinken, recommending that Afghan allies be evacuated quickly because the situation on the ground could rapidly deteriorate with catastrophic consequences. John Harwood joins me now from the White House. You know, John, we were talking to you yesterday about this, and yet we're 24 hours on. Not much has changed in terms of the explanations that people are expecting from the president. How is he hoping to reassure not just the American people, right, but the allies as well, that that things can get better in terms of those evacuations and not escalate further? Well, I think he is going to emphasize uh, some of the results that Nick Payton Walsh was just describing. That is the increased processing of people into the airport, the increased flow of evacuees out, still not 
uh, reach the uh, capacity levels that the White House is shooting for, that the mili U.S. military is shooting for, five to 9,000 a day, but they're increasing, and I would expect the president to explain to the American people uh, how they are um, uh, ramping up those numbers and what the prospects are for the next couple of weeks. We know that the president has said that uh, at least to get American citizens out, and uh, as Nick uh, noted, the government does not have a precise count of how many uh, there are remaining in the country, but the president said he would go beyond August 31st to get those people out. That leaves the question of the Afghan allies, and the president has said there's maybe 65, up to 65,000 of those people and their families. So the focus on the administration to try to salvage the situation after having experienced the uh, horrific beginning of this week and those pictures that so alarmed and unsettled Americans reflecting the uh, chaos in Kabul, they're hoping that by uh, getting a grip, a better grip, uh, on the evacuation process, uh, they can um, uh, salvage this situation. And uh, obviously that depends on the diplomacy and cooperation and le whatever leverage they have uh, over the Taliban to sustain their cooperation. It's not going to be perfect, of course. Uh, and we have seen the reports that uh, Clarissa Ward and others have described of uh, the Taliban uh, roughing up some people as they're trying to get to the airport. Some Af remaining of the Afghan security forces doing the same thing. That's kind of inevitable uh, when you have a crush of humanity trying to get out of this country right now. But uh, I, I think the president's going to uh, try to paint a picture of an improving situation. Yeah, and in terms of the way it's going to improve, I mean, we were just talking about that so-called dissent memo from, uh, you know, diplomats in, in Afghanistan. H how does he regroup here and really kind of maintain the credibility that, look, y unlike the interview that he gave to ABC News, that they were not prepared for every eventuality? Well, it, it, it is um, uh, certainly true, as the president has said, that the government and security forces unraveled faster than they uh, expected. Uh, the view of the White House and of the president is that had they taken some of the uh, more urgent action earlier uh, that the diplomats in the State Department uh, cable warned of and that some of the intelligence assessments suggested might happen, they simply would have accelerated and fast-forwarded this process because once you uh, signal that people who want to get out need to get out, uh, I think the belief of the administration is that uh, that would have triggered the process of the government falling, security forces uh, giving up, uh, President Ghani leaving the country. Uh, and so it uh, uh, could have happened in July, could happen now. Uh, that, I think, is the case that uh, they will try to make, although I wouldn't expect the president to linger on that in his remarks today. No, in fact, he will likely try and linger on what he knows to be true, that most Americans uh, do, according to the polls, agree with him that it was time to withdraw from Afghanistan. We will listen with you. Uh, John Forrest there at the White House, appreciate it. Now, NATO foreign ministers are currently holding an emergency meeting on Afghanistan. They are discussing a joint strategy in the country. The alliance is still working to get its people out of Kabul, and it says it is, of course, working closely with the EU and others on its evacuation missions. And Melissa Bell is following it all for us. And, and Melissa, NATO Secretary General Jen Stoltenberg says NATO wants close coordination on Afghanistan. Uh, you know, European allies, they've already called this bluntly a catastrophe. And, you know, at one point, Afghanistan was the centerpiece of a new mandate at one time for NATO. How do you think he's going to be able to change the approach now that they're basically at a point where they are in an emergency level trying to get their even their personnel out? 
That's that's right, Paula. Just at, at one point, the beginning of a, of, of a fresh start for NATO, but also let's remember in the seven decades of its existence, the only time that Article 5, at the very heart of what NATO stands for, has been invoked, where one member is attacked, uh, the other respond as one. And I think it is that that has led to such disappointment amongst European allies. So yes, for the time being, at this meeting, the idea that they will deal with the immediate urgency of getting not only Europeans, NATO's, NATO allies out of the country, but those Afghans who've helped them. But beyond that, the question of what NATO stands for at this point. It is one thing going in together. The fact that it has been, as we've seen over the course of the last couple of weeks, uh, the United States uh, pulling out without terribly much coordination, in particular with its European allies, that has really ruffled a few feathers. We've seen the man who's expected to take over from Angela Merkel describing it as the greatest debacle in NATO's history. And so this is a meeting that is going on behind, behind closed doors virtually, of course, but that you can expect to be fairly fractious. There's been a fair amount of impatience here in Europe, especially because you, when you consider the co possible consequences of what's likely to happen over the coming weeks and months, this is a continent that politically continues to feel the reverberations of the 2015 migration crisis. The fact that another may be looming as a result of this hasty and badly organized retreat is something that is on the mind of many Europeans at European level, but also in terms of the, of the member states. So I think it is going to be a moment also to try and figure out exactly what NATO stands for. Back in June when they'd met uh, for their summit, the question had been, it had been a pivotal moment, how do we go forward? How do we address the big questions of the day, Russia, China? Uh, when there can be a divergence of positions between Europe and the United States. I think after what's happened over the course of the last week, the question is whether these allies can really continue to count on one another. Uh, here in Europe, of course, there has also been, ever since the start of the Trump administration, a determined uh, desire to move towards more strategic independence, a questioning of what NATO stood for. Emmanuel Macron had described the organization as brain dead back in 2019. Uh, that really is going to be underpinning the discussions today. We expect a press conference later on at which we should find out a little bit more about exactly what happened behind closed doors. But I think one of the questions will be exactly what does NATO stand for at this point and what can it do in Afghanistan in particular going forward? Yeah, and it will be symbolic about how they move forward. And thank you for reminding me of what President Macron had said. Indeed, he used strong language then, and we are more than two years out, and not much has changed in terms of a clear path forward for NATO and the allies. Melissa Bell, I know you'll be watching it. Thanks so much. Right here after the break, strong words from Turkey now hitting back at nations who turn their backs on Afghan refugees. We are live in Istanbul next. Turkey's president is calling on European nations to take responsibility for those fleeing Afghanistan. Recep Tayyip Erdogan on Thursday accused Europe of, quote, turning its back on human values by closing national borders. Turkey does not have a duty, responsibility or obligation to be Europe's refugee warehouse. Once we strongly close our borders and send the current irregular migrants home, it's up to them to decide where they will go. You know, add to that, uh, Erdogan says Turkey currently hosts about 5 million foreign nationals. That includes 300,000 Afghans. Jumana Karatsa is live for us in Istanbul, and I'm sure his blunt words about Turkey being a human warehouse come as no surprise to you. And yet, what is he prepared to do? We've seen him take radical steps before to make sure that Europe helps out here when we could see tens of thousands more leave Afghanistan. 
Well, look, Paula, I think to put this all into context, as you mentioned, you know, this country is the largest host of refugees worldwide, uh, about four million refugees, the majority of them Syrians, but also some Afghans and also President Erdogan saying over the past three years, more than half of all irregular migrants into the country have been Afghans. Now, if you look at what has been going on in the country, the government is under a lot of pressure from opposition groups and also from a large portion of the population uh, because of the economic situation in the country that many are starting to blame um, the unemployment and other economic issues on uh, migrants and refugees that the country has opened its doors for. So uh, President Erdogan is under a lot of pressure for that, uh, uh, over that. And we have seen in recent days and weeks as the crisis has uh, intensified in Afghanistan, it seems to be an effort from the government, Paula, to try and show that they are doing something, that they are not going to keep uh, the borders open. We've had visits from the Minister of Defense down to the Iranian border saying that they are fortifying that border they are uh, building a wall there and that they are actually expanding that wall to ensure that there's no irregular migrant refugee flow, any sort of influx. So a lot of what we're hearing here is perhaps for local domestic consumption and also a message to Europe. These are strong warnings to Europe in reference to the 2016 uh, refugee um, uh, agreement that was signed between Turkey and uh, the EU. Basically, President Erdogan saying that they're not going to shoulder this responsibility on their own. They're not going to uh, watch Europe basically close its borders and Turkey, as he described it, turn into a refugee warehouse. What he's proposing to do, and he's mentioned this several times this past week, Paula, he's saying that he is open to talking to whatever government emerges in Afghanistan, the Taliban anything that ensures stabilizing the country because he believes that is the key to try and stop any sort of uh, refugee crisis coming from Afghanistan. Yeah, clearly a failed state is in no one's interest. Jamana Karatza, thank you so much. Now, while Turkey speaks out, as we just heard on refugees, the United Nations Refugee Agency, the UNHCR, is promising to maintain its presence and protect the Afghan people. Now, consider this. Even at the start of the year, think about it, before the crisis, Half of the population, including more than 4 million women and nearly 10 million children, needed humanitarian assistance. One third of the population faced emergency levels of acute food insecurity. Think about that. One in three and more than half of all children under five malnourished. Now, factor in all of these extra adversities here, conflict, drought, and of course, we can't forget the pandemic. Kelly Clements is the Deputy High Commissioner for the UNHCR. Certainly a full plate here, and what's going on at the airport demands urgent attention. We all understand about, understand that. The UNHCR remains concerned, right, about those vulnerable Afghans still inside the country, women and girls especially. How do you propose to maintain that support, especially now that the Taliban is in control? 
Thank you. Thank you so much, Paula. Um, thanks for having us on. Yes, indeed, our focus and others, other humanitarian partners inside Afghanistan is to remain, to stay and to deliver to the extent that safety and access are permissible. And in many parts of Afghanistan, that remains the case. You know, we have 3.5 million internally displaced people, as you mentioned, uh, 80% are women and children, and they are in uh, desperate need. Now, about 550 thousand of those uh, individuals were displaced just since January um, and a large number in the last few weeks. And so our focus is firmly on trying to respond with critical life-saving protection and aid, shelter, water, sanitation, anything really to help those families be able to support themselves. You know, we have partners throughout Afghanistan. We have uh, partners uh, that remain in all of the provinces uh, and two-thirds of the districts. And this is what we're trying to do now is to keep those programs going, to be able to access more families and individuals in need, uh, and to be able to provide the critical and life-saving support that the Afghan people need. Uh, and that remains our primary focus uh, within the humanitarian community within uh, Afghanistan. The need is certainly pronounced, as you just pointed out, but how do you deal with the Taliban? I mean, a lot of the internally displaced right now are a result of a lot of the conflict that's happened outside of Kabul, as you said, in the last several months, with the Taliban taking over certain provincial capitals and regions. But how do you do that? How have you found it is best to negotiate with the Taliban to deliver this aid? I know it is in their interest for it to be in the country as well. Well, in, indeed, it's a very dynamic and fluid situation, but pretty early on uh, in that takeover, there have, at an operational level, and I should emphasize that, our, our contacts at an operational level with the Taliban have continued for many, many years. Um, and that, of course, has stepped up in recent days. And, you know, really, it's at a provincial and it's at a district level. And we're working very closely with the UN country team, the humanitarian coordinator, to try to make sure that that access is secured, that our, our properties are safe, that we're able to deliver, and we're able to deliver those programs that we see critically important, including education and health care and other ways to be able to support the population. We've seen in most areas that we are able to continue to operate, and that's something obviously we want to expand. We think the needs will continue to grow. Um, obviously, the, the protection is, is uh, paramount. So ceasefires, uh, an end to the conflict, to the, the instability in some of these, not just in Kabul, but in the provinces as well, will be absolutely critical. Is there a risk that as the Taliban becomes emboldened, though, that this could become more difficult and even worse, that there could be reprisals on the people that you work with on the ground or even your staff? Well, and in fact, this is going to be a continuing uh, a, a concern for us is, you know, obviously there will need to be clear commitments uh, for us to be able to operate as a humanitarian community. And we'll need to see the, the evidence in terms of our ability to be able to deliver. And that for now, we have seen. Um, we see as, as uh, uh, our colleagues being able to go back into some areas, they've had to uh, uh, step back from momentarily. Um, and we've also seen programs that will continue Continue, perhaps in different ways, but also we have, you know, some for, for UNHCR, for the UN Refugee Agency, we've got 200 people inside the country in all of those parts of Afghanistan, and that remains, and the, and the humanitarian partners uh, adding another 900 in, in all parts of the country, that we need to ramp up and to continue.
In terms of ramping it up, though, will you need the international community to help here when it comes to trying to find some levers of influence with the Taliban? I mean, do you think there is, uh, and while you remain neutral, everyone understands that, do you think there is going to be a place here where the allies need to step up and make sure that they give the kind of security that you will need from the Taliban in almost every corner and crevice of the country now? I think we're going to need as much support as we can possibly get. Uh, this is direct discussions. It's it's the support and leverage from others. Obviously, I think everyone wants to avoid further further uh, suffering of the Afghan people. They will want to have a strong and a robust uh, humanitarian response. But we need obviously safety, protection of civilians, the end to the fighting. All of that needs to be part of 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 the equation as well. So yes, we're going to need an enormous amount of support inside, including support financially from those uh, from those governments and the like. Uh, the humanitarian response plan is terribly underfunded, not to mention the refugee response plan and our, our actions outside uh, in, in Pakistan, Iran, uh, Turkey, you mentioned earlier, and so on. We need that kind of support from the international community. Sustained support uh, will be absolutely essential. And as you mentioned, the, you know, the issue of aid fatigue is real. Uh, I don't have a lot of time here, uh, uh, but quickly, are you disappointed about this issue of hot potato with refugees? Already we have Turkey saying, not here, not now. Do you worry that this will turn into another crisis outside of Afghanistan's borders? You know, we're, we really now are seeing an internal displacement crisis, not a refugee exodus, not at this point. We do continue to plan. We call on those governments to please keep their borders open. People will need to access asylum. They will need to be protected. There aren't very many places for Afghans to go right now. And so the support to Pakistan and Iran, who have been longstanding hosts for refugees over decades, remains fundamentally right. critical. Right. And Kelly Collins, I'll have to leave it there. You are the Deputy High Commissioner for the UNCR, UNHCR, and we thank you for your time. Now, up next, the withdrawal from Afghanistan will be remembered as the Biden administration's first debacle, says my next guest. He warns that everything now hinges on getting the evacuation right. And returning to our top story, the Taliban have moved quickly to crush early opposition to their rule in Afghanistan. There have been clashes with protesters and an indefinite curfew has been imposed in the city of Khos. Now, a report prepared for the United Nations warned the hunt for those who worked with the former government is at this hour intensifying. A German broadcaster says the Taliban are searching for journalists after shooting dead a relative of one of its employees. Now, meantime, the crowds at Kabul airport you see there are swelling and locals trying to get out are struggling, of course, to try and pass those Taliban checkpoints. The American embassy reiterated a short while ago that it cannot provide safe passage to the airport. Joining me now is Ariel Cohen, a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council Eurasia Center. And, you know, you have been pointing out that President Biden has been nothing but shrewd. But in your words, American voters have shown some eagerness to end the forever wars, but that not like this, right? The scenes are just too much. He is clearly betting, though, that in a few days, the glare of the media will be gone. People will move on. What do you see as the collateral damage here? Well, the collateral damage, first and foremost, is the U.S. reputation as an ally and U.S. position in Eurasia, uh, in an area that for over 100 years 
the top thinkers in the business were saying, he who controls Eurasia controls the Eastern Hemisphere. He who controls the Eastern Hemisphere controls the world. It may sound old, but it's still pretty much true. And what we see now is the Taliban, uh, without an air force, without cyber, uh, without missiles, uh, developing, uh, de delivering a blow to the biggest, strongest superpower on the planet. And as we're leaving our allies in Taiwan, our allies in Japan, uh, Australia, you name it, as well as in Europe, the Baltic states and Poland come to mind, uh, our allies are questioning our commitment to stand by them. This is probably the biggest blow to American reputation since the fall of Saigon in 1975. We saw the same pictures of people clinging to the aircraft leaving, and also uh, the fall of the Shah in 1979, where the Carter administration didn't do very much uh, to save a strategic ally um, of the United States. Yeah, and the re repercussions from that are, are, you know, still reverberating four decades on. You know, there's very a theory. Very much so. Yeah, and I have to say, though, to you, just take a counterpoint here. There's a theory that, okay, let's talk about Taiwan and uh, Ukraine. So if we talk about Taiwan and Ukraine and they're watching, there is a theory that China and Russia are only going to get a propaganda victory out of this, right? That strategically, it doesn't mean much. What do you say to that? Uh, it's rubbish because... Uh, it is not the issue of whether or not we needed to leave Afghanistan. I am in favor of not engaging in nation building, not crusading uh, for democracy for in a tribal society that barely can read it right. 40% of Afghans uh, are literate and even higher percentage among women. But what I'm saying is uh, you do not cut and run like that. You do not leave equipment worth of billions of dollars, 2,000 vehicles, including Humvees, uh, missiles, shoulder-launched missiles, um, the equipment that would allow the Taliban to track down and kill brutally uh, our collaborators. You have to leave in an orderly fashion, taking your people with you and protecting them. Uh, we, we airlifted 140,000 people from South Vietnam uh, in the very end uh, days of American presence there. Uh, we did not do that in Afghanistan up to, I saw figures up to 10,000 American citizens, not just soldiers, contractors, relatives, um, civilians are stuck in Afghanistan and sooner or later some, somebody will get killed and then what? And then what, you know, as you're speaking, we're showing the scenes from the airport. But what I always worry about is what we can't see. Uh, th there, there could be, unfortunately, quite an escalation to come. I, I want to ask you about the exhaustion and the frustration among the U.S.'s closest allies. It's been palpable. It's been blunt. How do you believe they will change their posture? Uh, well, it depends which allies we're talking about. If let's talk about, about clearly those NATO allies, right? I mean, let's talk about the right. UK, France and Germany. Well, UK, France and Germany uh, should have gotten a wake up call back in 2014 with the uh, Russian um, engagement in Ukraine. Uh, they committed uh, to paying 2% of their GDP 
to uh, the military and military-related expenses. Britain does it. Germany and France do not, and other Europeans do not. 80% of NATO military budgets are paid by English speakers, US, Canada, uh, and uh, UK. Uh, so the Europeans had a wake-up call long ago that they prefer to turn uh, to the other side and keep sleeping. Now, hopefully, they're going to wake up. Europe needs a much stronger, more robust uh, military arm, uh, clearly. And our Asian allies, unfortunately, I hate to say that I'm against nuclear proliferation, but I won't be surprised if Taiwan and Japan are considering very serious right. nuclear uh, programs as we speak. Because right. you and cannot rely, you cannot rely today on the United States security commitment. Yeah, and that gives us right there, in a nutshell, the ramifications of this yet to come. Ariel Cohen, Senior Fellow at the Atlantic Council Eurasia Center, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Now, a Taliban spokesperson said today that China has played a positive role so far in helping promote stability in Afghanistan. And he said Beijing is welcome to help contribute to rebuilding of the country. China traditionally has had closer relations with the Taliban than other global powers, but it remains clear-eyed about the regional challenges ahead. David Culver has our story. Just weeks before the Taliban seized power in Afghanistan... China made a very public display of growing closer to the group's leadership. Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi meeting a Taliban delegation in northern China in July, giving legitimacy and perhaps confidence to the militant group long regarded with fear and suspicion by the rest of the world. As many global powers now rush to escape Afghanistan, China claims it remains one of the few countries to retain its embassy in the capital. But China's support for the Taliban comes with strings attached. China's help with reconstruction in exchange for the Taliban assuring regional stability. They will never allow any forces to use Afghan territory to endanger China. A deal brokered between awkward allies, a militant group representing hardline Islam, and a Chinese government accused of cultural genocide against and mass detainment of its Muslim minorities at home. But China's relationship with the Taliban goes back a long way. It established uh, relations with the Taliban already in 1999 uh, at the encouragement of Pakistan, which is one of China's closest allies. The relationship was seen as pragmatism to manage a potential threat, as China shares a small border with Afghanistan through the Wakhan Corridor. And China's multi-billion dollar Belt and Road investments in neighboring Pakistan are at stake. I think they are very wary to get involved militarily. And so at this stage, I think trying to cultivate the top rungs of the Taliban promised lots of foreign aid and investments. That is really their least worst option at the moment. The Taliban, for its part, has not spoken out publicly against China's crackdown on its weaker Muslim population in Xinjiang, a silence replicated by many other Muslim-majority countries, such as Iran and Saudi Arabia. The Chinese government defends its Xinjiang policy and says it's trying to stamp out terrorism. After several attacks, which it blamed on a group called the East Turkestan Islamic Movement, or ETIM, a tiny fringe group that began to dissolve when its leader was killed by the Pakistani military in 2003. On my orders. Sean Roberts, author of The War on the Uyghurs, says the Chinese government used George W. Bush's War on Terror to justify its harsh policies targeting the ethnic Muslim minorities. I think that um, shielded China from a lot of criticism for 
some of the draconian policies it carried out against Uyghurs. But other groups who could use the plight of the Uyghur cause to recruit jihadis, a concern for Asia's superpower as it tries to navigate the new political reality on its doorstep. David Culver, CNN, Beijing. Still to come, desperation grows in Haiti, where hospitals are overwhelmed with the number of earthquake victims needing treatment. The humanitarian disaster in Haiti after Saturday's 7.2 magnitude earthquake continues, of course, to unfold there. International aid is now trickling in to help the thousands left homeless by the quake, which also claimed more than 2,000 lives. Now, many survivors are lacking just the basics and are living among the rubble with no shelter, afraid to enter what's left of any remaining buildings for fear, of course, that they'll collapse. Meantime, hospitals across Haiti are overwhelmed, caring for the more than 12,000 people injured in the quake. CNN's Joe Johns reports from the capital, Port-au-Prince. The helicopter convoy bringing the most seriously injured from the earthquake zone to Port-au-Prince, Haiti, running from sunup to sundown. Today, they're greeted by a surgeon, a broken bone specialist, who quickly evaluates their condition. The 7.2 magnitude earthquake left more than 2,000 people dead and over 12,000 people injured, causing hospitals in Haiti to be completely overwhelmed. A short distance by air from La Calle to Port-au-Prince, but getting here can be a slow process. This 23-month-old girl suffered a laceration running from thigh to ankle in Saturday's earthquake. When she finally was flown into the capital, her leg was badly infected. It took a long time to get her here. To get her, so it's about uh, three days. The facilities are pretty good over there. Uh, it's uh, the issue that uh, they are dealing uh, with uh, uh, in a uh, countryside. Many of the patients coming in, children. As I was sleeping, the bed was shaking, and then I ran, and there was a brick in front of me that fell on my feet. From the airport, ambulances fan out across the city, taking the patients to hospitals that should best suit their needs. Here at the hospital run by Doctors Without Borders on the west side of town, where the staff have been dealing with more than just the rapidly filling beds. The hardest part is when a staff member knows or receives a patient to whom they may be related and it's tougher for them. The stories of the patients heart-wrenching. My first son died next to me, this mother of four says. She lost not one, but two sons in the earthquake, both dying right next to her when their house collapsed on top of them. She was pinned in the rubble for hours before being rescued. When they started digging and they made a hole, I grabbed one of the people's feet so they knew I was alive. After being pulled from the rubble, her right leg was amputated, but she says her spirit is unbroken. I have a sister and a mother who are living in the States. I want them to know to stay strong because God is given, God will take away. Because of the large number of people injured in the earthquake, there's no assurance that patients flown from the disaster zone to Port-au-Prince will stay in hospitals here for long. They're often flown back to make room 
for other patients. Joe John, CNN, Port-au-Prince, Haiti. Meantime, hurricane watches are in effect for parts of the US, U.S. Northeast as they brace for Tropical Storm Henry. And the National Hurricane Center says Tropical Storm Grace, meantime, has strengthened back into a hurricane with 135-kilometer-hour winds. Grace is expected to make a second landfall in east-central Mexico later Friday and strengthen until landfall overnight. And we will be right back with more news. Coronavirus cases are surging globally. Let's give you a quick update on the numbers. According to the World Health Organization, there are now more than 209 million cases of COVID-19 worldwide and more than 4 million deaths. New Zealand and parts of Australia, meantime, are tightening COVID restrictions as the Delta variant fuels a rise in cases. Hong Kong has been toughening its already rigid rules. But it seems some Hollywood actors are exempt. Actress Nicole Kidman and four of her crew members managed to bypass those quarantine rules. Local officials granted her a special exemption when she arrived from Australia. Now, Kidman is in Hong Kong to film an upcoming TV series. You can imagine outrage is growing there since others have had to abide by those very strict rules. CNN's Will Ripley has the story from Hong Kong. To understand why people here in Hong Kong are so outraged by this quarantine exemption granted to Nicole Kidman and certain members of her crew, you need to understand what it's like if you live and work here in Hong Kong and you have a need to travel abroad, whether it be for business, whether it be to see your family. No matter the reason, almost everyone, with a few exceptions, a few quarantine exemptions for essential workers, people have to isolate in a hotel room for up to 21 days if they come from a country that the Hong Kong government deems high risk. So from seven days to 21 days at your own expense in a hotel. That in itself is an ordeal for anyone who is traveling, but it's also financially uh, not feasible for a lot of people here in Hong Kong. Either they can't afford a hotel quarantine or they can't get the time off work. So they're stuck. They can't travel. They can't see their families. Uh, and, and for those people to see someone like Nicole Kidman fly in by private jet from Sydney, which Hong Kong deems a medium risk country, they have an outbreak in Sydney right now, of the Delta variant, to come in, doesn't have to wait in the long lines of five or six hours at the airport, doesn't have to isolate in a hotel, but is actually out within a couple of days of her arrival at the store or on location filming her series, her new show for Amazon. It is absolutely infuriating for people. Now, the Hong Kong government is defending this quarantine exemption. They say that Kidman and her staff are vaccinated. They say that they are performing an essential service for the city's economy by shooting this series at a time that Hong Kong is trying to revive its image. And they say that it is entirely safe because they're getting tested regularly for COVID. It may be safe, but for a lot of people here in Hong Kong, it is certainly not fair. Will Ripley, CNN, in quarantine in Hong Kong. In quarantine, indeed, and that's it for our show. Thanks for joining us. Connect the world with Issa Suarez is next. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. 
Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.